It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Laura Perry and Kay Wenigal. Hello Laura. Hi Nat. Hello Kay. Hi Nat. Today we will be talking about the Western Australian Grid with Alistair Leith, who works for SEN, which stands for Sustainable Energy Now. SEN is an organisation in WA working to raise awareness of how a mix of renewable energy technologies are able to meet all of Western Australia's electricity needs. SEN has a particular focus on WA's main electricity grid called the South West Interconnected System, or SWISS for short. Welcome Alistair and thanks for joining us today. Hi Nat. Alistair, firstly, can you tell us a bit about SEN and how you became part of it? It was actually BZE that brought me to SEN. Oh, go BZE again. (laughs) I was in WA. uh, I'd just gone over to work there and they approached me to help organise a launch of the Renewable Energy Superpower Report for Perth. There had been a BZE chapter over there at some point, but it had kind of fallen into disrepair, so... We brought Michael Lloyd over and it was a very, very popular event. Uh, I got so much tremendous feedback from that. People were saying it's the best thing we've had in climate renewable space in years. And um, We were to have Mark Butler, unfortunately, who was a late withdrawal, but having him on the card brought a lot of local MPs to the event. So, yeah, it was really good. So so what happened subsequent to that event that, that got SEN going? Uh, that was – SEN was already well and truly established by then. Okay. It was just that ha- – that got me involved in SEN because they asked me to do that and then they asked me to do this and that and this and that. (laughs) (laughs) And before you knew it, you were on the books. So when was SEN started? I'm not exactly sure when SEN was put into place, but I only found out recently that I just assumed it was like BZE in response to climate science, but actually started a lot before that and um, there was moves to get a nuclear industry started there and uh, it was kind of in response to that that some early people, including Gus King, who is a IBM programmer for many, many years, decided to write Siren, which is the modelling software that uh, SEN uses to model that grid and can be used to model any grid. Well, that's really interesting because that's how a lot of the renewables activism started in Europe, you know, as an anti-nuclear movement. Indeed. I didn't realise we had a component of that in Australia as well. So what, what's the role that you play with SEN? So I'm on the committee and uh, we have long and regular meetings to decide on uh, strategy and we, I'm also on a policy team, which there's quite a lot of people on, and uh, I'm their outreach team leader, which is a team of one at the moment, but <laughs> we need to And here you are reaching out. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> it's a long way. And, and so what are SEN's main objectives these days? 
That's that's a bit of a work in progress. It's um, like many sort of organisations that works with intensively with data. There was a perception that if you you know build it, they will come. You know it, that providing intellectual proof that something can be done um, is enough for intelligent people to go, yeah, let's do it. But um, as we know in the climate movement and the environment movement, it's not necessarily the case. And so we're moving now towards. Uh, looking what is our strategy, how do we achieve the outcomes we want, which is, you know, a clean, affordable grid and to do it as soon as possible. Okay, you know, so your focus in- has been on data and now you, you're working more towards the advocacy end of, of selling that data and, and promoting it. That's right. We, I mean, Sen has always um, made visits to local MPs, uh, to ministers where possible and um, opposition leaders and so on to try and advocate for... Um, renewable energy under the Barnett government obviously it went into complete disrepair Um, so a lot of work was focused on trying to get something some election commitments from the Labor opposition at the last election Uh, they did promise around 60 million dollars worth of projects Um, they balked at a state-based renewable energy target which was something uh, I was very keen to get up because you know my involvement in Yester Renewables before the Andrews government took that on, you know, I could see that the pathway to that was very constructive, but um, WA is a very different state to Victoria. Yes, there's a number of differences that come up in the course of this discussion. So, Alistair, can you tell us a little bit about the Western Australian electricity grid and the area that it covers? Yeah, it's the, the Swiss grid is, um, I suppose, large by world standards in terms of geographic footprint, but... Mm. Um, I think peak, peak demand maximum is it's less than four thousand uh, mm-hmm. megawatts, as far as I recall, and um, that, that w- that's a summer maximum. Obviously, um, the the footprint of the Swiss in terms of WA is very small. It goes from you know Perth. Well, Swiss is the southwest interconnect yeah. system. So Perth's right in the middle of that grid on the coast, on the mm-hmm. west coast, the capital city, and it go- reaches up to Geraldton, which is not even halfway. You know, to mm. the to the top of WA, much less yeah. um, down to Albany, uh, and then across to it. Kind of covers the wheat belt. People can look it up on the map, but it covers the wheat belt. And then there's a thin corridor that goes out to Kalgoorlie, and then there's another from sort Perth. of distribution network that well from the wheat belt mm-hmm. um, and goes out to the Kalgoorlie, uh, where there's generation. Uh, and as I understand it, sometimes it can't, the flow is in, sometimes the flow is out. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of Microgrids, hopefully, north of Geraldton, that um, manage on their own. There are. The distribution now is managed by um, – there's been quite a few changes and the latest iteration of generation distribution is that Western Power covers the Swiss distribution and Horizon covers uh, the Northwestern interconnected system, which is not really an interconnected system in the way the Swiss is. It's more mining town, generation for the mine and the town. You know, There's not a lot of network. Uh, so microgrids are – enormous interest to Horizon and they're doing, you know, they're working with Arena and people like that to um, to look at that. There's also a bit of microgrid being looked at uh, in Perth, in the area of Fremantle where I live, um, which Powerledger is involved with, if people have heard of that. It's a, it's a very um, early stage yet, but it's going to expand and look at various iterations of that. In fact, Sen Presents on Monday, <laughs> um, James... Elston from Power Ledger and Curtin University 
uh, who's got an arena-funded PhD grant is going to be speaking. So anyone listening in Perth, get down to that. Mm. So um, you mentioned Western Power and Horizon. Are they both privately owned or is there any public ownership of that, those systems? Yeah, um, so they, they are, I'm not sure about Horizon, but Western Power definitely, you know, state-owned enterprise, but they're kind of, and as is Synergy, the generation arm, they were together and then they'll split again. Um, Synergy owns almost all of the coal except for Blue Waters in Quinana which is Japanese-owned, uh, and the newest that was built. And, yeah, it's um, the government is moving towards making noises about full uh, contestability at the retail level, at the domestic level. At the moment, it's only if you have large energy needs. Uh, there are other players in the market for, for large consumers of energy. But at the moment, for, um, for households and so on, it's, it's all synergy on the Swiss. Okay, so so most of the generation and distribution is publicly owned. Yeah, di- distribution, as is the case in Victoria, it's a, it's a natural monopoly, and so yeah, whether it's privately owned or publicly owned, you've got you know some of the similar kind of problems. And is that the same with the transmission? Is that publicly owned? Yeah, yeah, they actually Western Power manage the distribution and the transmission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just mentioned about coal. Coal in Western Australia, is that a long-term generation decision that the government's making or is that going to be wound up fairly soon? Uh, they've, already, they've already closed Moodja AB. Uh, which is which down is, in Collie? Yeah, all, all the coal except for Blue Waters, which I mentioned, which is closer to Perth in Quinana. All, all the coal is down in an area, um, the Collie-Bunbury area, and most of the workers there live in Bunbury or, or Collie kind of region. A lot of Dido, drive in, drive out. Um, and, uh, question. So I'm just wondering how long coal's going to be around in Western Australia. Is it going to be phased out at any stage? Yeah, actually our chairman, Ian Porter, just noticed in the Finkel review that, uh, they recommended closure in 2020 or 2021, something like that. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. These are old plants and, um, the Barnett government spent something, it ended up being something like $300 million on merger AB to refurbish and, uh, they essentially didn't produce any power and now that's been closed. Then there's Moodja CD and then there's Collie, which is, I think, two generators there. Uh, it's old. It's subject to the same risks. And, and this is something that Sen has been doing in terms of advocacy is going to the senior policy advisors to the energy minister and to other ministers and saying, look, the longer you wait, the, the higher the risk profile with these things. In particular, with sol- more and more solar coming on, you've got issues with coal needing to ramp more aggressively. And we've modelled a lot of stuff I probably won't come into now in terms of you know ramping events per year and things like that. But um, some of the people within SAN are you know, very experienced engineers in, in power generation and they're, they're well aware of the problems that can, you can have with boilers and pipes and things like that. And you know, we're trying to make that very clear to the government. Yeah, and that's happening to all the coal plants around Australia. And even today I read that the main generator in Luoyang B, I think it is, is being pulled out and taken to Germany. I think there's been about 17 failures in recent times. So Yeah, good old baseload coal. Very hey? unreliable. What does it take yeah. to firm up coal? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a battery. Maybe battery. <laughs> <laughs> Snowy too in 10 years. <laughs> so um, what are your thoughts about transitioning away from this old coal? that's um, about to become obsolete and 
what what is SEN advocating about that? What what's the process that the Swiss system should be taking? So SEN's done a lot of modelling around different penetrations of renewables on the Swiss grid, and we end up with a levelised cost of energy price for what it would cost at a certain time to end up at that level of renewables. And what the modellers have found, so that's um, particularly Ben Rose, who who is um, responsible for the power balance part of our modelling software, which is a very complicated Excel spreadsheet or set of sheets. Uh, And what they've found is that you get a kind of sweet spot around 85% by 2030. That is, uh, transitioning to that, you get the most carbon abatement for a cost that is the same as or less than continuing with coal and gas. Um, Coal and gas will need to be replaced. You know, they can't run forever. And so you have to factor in, you know, replacing old with new. And for coal in particular, that would have to happen soon rather than later. Even refurbishment is very expensive. And um, So how does that compare with the costs of new renewables? Well, yeah, we're, the modelling the modeling that was done two years ago, um, we've done more modelling since, but I'm more familiar with the, the models that were, the prices that we used, which were two years ago. Um, you know, conservative pricing, that modelling, I'd have to say, includes fairly conservative assumptions about rooftop solar growth. Um, I, I did some jobs modelling and I was looking at the growth that we'd model for rooftop solar and it's actually less than what's been happening for the last three years. So, so what does that modelling show in terms of...? It, it, well, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer to go to 85% by 2030 at least um, because it's on a few years ago's costs for renewables, it's the same cost as business as usual. You've got a much lower risk profile in terms of maintaining supply uh, if if the government set in place policy mechanisms that um, ensured uh, the market had certainty around where they were going, you'd actually get lower cost of finance, and that's one of the big costs now in 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 renewables and the differentials. Is you know in Victoria you're getting amazing prices now because you've got reverse auctions, you've got competition, but you've also got government control and discretion about which projects they choose. So unlike the rare, where you know a lot of it got built in South Australia, uh, with the with the PPAs in Victoria, they can pick and choose projects, you know, based on employment, you know, they want in a regional area, or based on, you know, what they think is going to happen with the grid and, um, you know, competition for grid access and things like that. So based, you're talking about jobs and employment. Does your modelling take that into account as well? It does, and that's one thing we've been very keen to put to the politicians because obviously jobs and growth is, you know, their bread and butter issue. And uh, it's just a no-brainer when you look at... I I modelled the jobs quite recently and for our 85% to 2030, and within a couple of years you've got more permanent jobs than you have in coal. That's permanent ongoing maintenance and operations jobs. When you're adding construction, you're talking about peaking at around 6,000 jobs within, you know, three to five years. Uh, and if you have some manufacturing, there's things we could do in manufacturing. We could build the towers there like they're built over east. We could, you know, um, blades potentially. We had a shipbuilder who said, oh, you know, um, 1,500 turbine um, blades you know, I can't remember the length of them, you know, say 75 metres, no problem. We build ships bigger than that with two pieces of fibreglass. We'll, we'll do that. We'll take that job. So there is the potential. Obviously, we're not going to have a turbine manufacturing industry there overnight, but 
um, there's plenty of jobs that could be delivered in manufacturing and um, we're not talking about you know job multipliers we, we've done a literature review and we've just used direct jobs so I mean you've got cheaper power more reliable power cleaner power and you've got you know five times the jobs it just seems crazy not to do it well, so, yeah, it absolutely seems a no-brainer, you know, even environmental considerations aside, you know, in terms of what what the normal policy drivers are for our politicians, it seems economic and risk-wise that it, it's a no-brainer. Well, I, I just wonder with the jobs thing, if you're saying that there's going to be more jobs long-term, does that, doesn't that mean higher costs if you've got more people being paid? Well, not really, because the, the costs of renewable energy are becoming so competitive that it's just cheaper to build renewables and operate them with people and use people to build them than it is to build another coal plant. Wow, and so the, it's offset by the capital costs and the, and the costs of, of money. Yeah, and, and, and the more you build renewables, as we know, the cheaper they get from learnings. And that, that is applicable to an area as well because you get local suppliers and producers and constructors getting up to speed, more confident, they're bidding lower. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Alistair Leith about the West Australian electricity grid. So, Alistair, tell us about the renewables, what sort of renewable mix that you'd expect to find in Western Australia, and then we can talk about how that um, relates to jobs in those areas. Yeah, we've modelled quite a few different scenarios in terms of, you know, how much wind, how much solar, how much concentrated solar. Um, but most of the modelling around the 80, 85% penetration, we're just looking at um, large-scale solar, rooftop solar and wind. Um, the other technologies are more expensive. They come into their own when you're talking about high penetrations of renewables because, as we're seeing in South Australia, you need to be able to cover gaps. And, you know, solar thermal with thermal storage applies to that. Uh, pumped hydro is applicable to that. But... Uh, and also biomass. Uh, we've already have um, Malligum plantations, which have co-benefits in terms of dryland salinity and water logging and winter and things like that. So there could potentially be an industry for you know converting Malligum to biofuel, burning that, and it's something that you can stockpile for for uh, winter wind droughts, which is something we, we we might get to in terms of talking about the mix. But um, yeah, the the, the the heavy lifting is done by wind and solar, much like anywhere else. So would it be more wind or more solar? Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think it's um, 60-40 or something like that in terms of that, you know, getting to those high penetrations. Um, and is that a, are we talking about offshore wind or onshore? We haven't modelled offshore wind. You have to go a fair way off to get a different wind profile. Uh, and then once you do go a fair way off, you're talking about falling off the shelf into very deep water. So what's driving European offshore as I understand it is um, it's getting harder and harder to find onshore sites and so they can put these massive um, offshore developments and you know they don't have all the planning headaches that can take years to resolve Um, and yeah we've just got a wealth of wind sites in in WA onshore that could be developed before Um, I'm I'm not saying it'll never happen but you know I can't see it happening in the short term. And in terms of the wind, is it a seasonal thing on the West Coast particularly? Yeah, so we do get these um, these winter wind droughts where you've got overcast weather, so your solar's not performing very well, and you get 
you know, typically for a week can be two weeks where wind is very poor and that's where going to 100% is an issue in terms of cost because that last 15% comes at a much higher cost premium than the than the rest, the first 85%. Um, and that's why Sen has advocated for biomass and some pumped hydro and so on to fill that. But the problem with pumped hydro is, and, you know, CST with molten salt, uh, you can cover a day, you know, like CST typically might shift power needs from, you know, the middle of the day when you've got a lot of sun into the evening, maybe the next day, cloudy day, they can store it up. But once you start getting into three days, four days, it's really not viable because the cost of storage is completely dependent on how much you use it. If you only, you know, if you use it twice a day, every day of the year, it's a lot cheaper than, you know, using it twice a year. It's hundreds of times cheaper. Uh, so, batteries an option? Batteries an option, but again, um, you're talking about a lot of batteries to supply a grid's full demand for, um, you know, a week, two weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the battery space in 10 years, but that that is a lot of energy. And that's why pumped hydro makes sense in some ways because it gives you the opportunity to store a, a vast amount. But you've still got to have all the generators to supply full demand from that pumped hydro. So these are, these are the problems. And that's where a biomass or, who knows, power to gas might be in the money. By the time we get to 85%, a lot of national grids are going to start hitting a high penetration of renewables and um, generate, and there'll be a lot of spilled electricity from wind and solar. So, you know, just not being used, not being bought, we might see the emergence of power-to-gas technology where they electro- they um, form hydrogen through electrolysis. They either store it as hydrogen or store it as a liquid fuel, um, some other derivative, and then they put it back through a fuel cell and generate power when they need it. You know, it's... Who's, who would have thought solar would be 85%, you know, 80% of the price it was five years ago? Who would have thought wind would be at the prices where they're at? Even, um, I think, uh, Power, Power Shop was saying that just the other day. Or they, they put out an expression of interest and they would not have bet in any way that it was going to be close to the prices they were getting even two, three years ago. Hmm. So yeah. who knows? Yeah. On your website, you've got a couple of toolkits and you referred to them earlier called Siren and Power Balance. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, Siren is a is a brilliant tool. It's open source software and can be downloaded. It's on we've got a link to, on our site to the SourceForge download. It basically allows you to put a map uh, you, from Google Maps or any other kind of map and cut and and, and map geometry into it. Uh, you can then input uh, a transmission system. Uh, any and, transmission system. Yeah, you just give it the grid coordinates and. It will it will load that into Siren. Uh, it uses a couple of other open, open source tools. Um, it gets the mirror data, which is NASA weather data derived from their satellite system, and that will give you hourly solar and wind data for any period in the year. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other thing it uses is the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, also USA, uh, SAM system advisory model, which is loaded up with every kind of renewable technology you can think of and but it's a very complicated piece of software you can even go in and you know choose different geometries for your solar cst plan you know how the heliostats are laid out it's it's very very complicated but uh siren gives you a tool where you can just drop and drag 
assets onto your map. Okay, I want a wind farm here. I want a solar farm, a solar CST there. I want a large scale solar there, and it will automatically draw in the transmission lines that are adequate for whatever you've deployed, and model that against a demand center. Uh, and then what we do then is we take that output eight hundred and eight thousand seven hundred and sixty hours in a year. We take all those columns of numbers for every year and what's been produced and we put it into this Excel thing called Power Balance that Ben Rose authored and that then does your uh, modelling for are we meeting demand for every hour? Um, If we've got excess, are we filling up storage? Uh, When do we need to call on storage? So it's essentially a merit order effect. um, That's also available for download, although I should say we've got a couple of interns working on cleaning that up because... Uh, it was one person's tool, essentially best known to him, and we, um, it does take a bit of learning. Um, if people want to get in touch with Sam, we're happy to like train people in how to use it. But uh, it's going to be a lot easier to use and a lot more powerful in a couple of months. Okay. So we've only got a minute or so left, unfortunately. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, suggestions that we hear per- periodically about the East-West Interconnect and what SEN's... Um, stances on that yeah no one's no one's done serious modeling on it but um everyone's back of everyone's envelope says don't even model it because it's a bit like pumped hydro or cst to do you know a week's worth of generation you've got to you've got to pay for not just you know an interconnect like between south australia and victoria but to be able to supply you know 300 4000 megawatts of power for a week okay it's a big cost, isn't it? So um, for listeners who want to find out more, Alistair, what's your website? It's sen.asn.au. sen.asn.au. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Alistair. It's been really great to hear all about the Swiss and the work that the great work that SEN has been doing. Keep it up. Thanks for having us in. We've been talking to Alistair Leith from Sustainable Energy Now in Western Australia about the WA electricity grid. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others that we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.